It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Deck maintenance isn't fun. Move the furniture and barbecue, sand and prep, paint, seal, or get a low-maintenance Trex deck. The only colour fade you'll have to deal with is watching the sunset. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. Thorpe's coming in, gold and a world record! Ian Thorpe, the birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Australia have done it! Australia is back on the biggest stage. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives. Here's your host, Peter Donegan. As always, a great time of the week. Great to have your company for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. And today we celebrate the life of a man who's been at the forefront of Australian sport for a long time now. From the time as a young man he ventured across the country, he's made his mark in racing. And his name is Damien Oliver and he's with me in the studio. Ollie, welcome. Thanks, Pete. You're looking pretty much the same as that young, fresh-faced boy that I saw come over all those years ago. Oh, I'm not sure about that. I'm sure I've aged a bit since then. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not at all. How are you travelling, mate? Yeah, good. Good. And um, racing's going well. I'm enjoying it still, um, even though I've been doing it for 30 years now, pretty much. And uh, But I do still enjoy it. And, um, you know, it's a new challenge every day you do it. What keeps you fresh? Because when you're in something for as long as you've been in it, there must be times where it becomes a little bit of a grind. What keeps you going to work every day? Yeah, you're right there. There's times it does become a bit of a grind, but, you know, racing, every race is different. Um, you're riding new horses all the time. You're dealing with different people all the time, and it's exciting. It's an adrenaline rush when you actually do it. So pretty lucky in a way that I go to a job that is exciting like that for me, and um, I still find it a challenge at times. And, um, you know, it's uh, and the next generation's coming through and always sort of pressing you as well. So it's always uh, um, a challenge to stay at the top of your game and to keep your position you know, at a high level. Are those whippersnappers respectful to you in the jockey's room now that you're one of the senior citizens in there? Uh, generally, um, yeah. There's a there's a bit of byplay that goes on in the jockey's room at times. And, you know, as, as I said, I've been around for a while now, so I've seen seen a lot of it. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, it's always a lot of fun in, in the jockey's room. There's a, you know, there's a serious element to it as well, but there's a, there's a lot of banter and fun that goes on as well. I want to talk to you about the jockey's room in depth a little bit later on because I am very fortunate that I've been one of the few people who's been allowed in the jockey's room over the years, so I've seen a few things going on in there, some of which we can't necessarily mention on radio, but we'll talk about that later on. I guess one of the things that keeps you fresh is there's so many carnivals these days, so many big race carnivals dotted throughout the year, and that would always make it a bit easier to go to work, I guess. Yeah, you're right there. I mean, obviously, Melbourne in the spring is, you know, a busy time for us. Then I get to go to Perth, uh, where I'm from, um, and ride and visit family in December. And then we've just had the Magic Millions in January, and then coming back into the Autumn Carnival in Melbourne now, and then 
uh, March it'll go to Sydney and then Adelaide in May and Brisbane sort of May, June. So, you know, it's quite a full calendar and uh, you do get to travel a bit as well. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough to travel throughout the world a little bit with it as well, but sort of most of my riding is in Australia these days. Internationally, what are your commitments, say, looking at the year ahead? Do you have anything on the books that you're looking at? Uh, not not at this stage internationally. It's mostly domestically for me now. You know, I've got a family here and I'm sort of pretty locked into to Melbourne or Australia. Uh, but, um, you know, at different times I've ridden through, you know, Hong Kong and Japan and, and a little bit in Europe and, you know, even places like Mauritius and mm. Dubai, those sort of places. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I've got to travel the world doing it and um, it's been, been a lot of fun. Mauritius is a fun place. I went to the races there. Uh, Champ de Mar, I think, is the race course there. That's right, yeah. And the one thing that struck me at Mauritius was the way that the crowd just bounces up and down (laughs) when the race is on, because it's a little bike track, isn't it? Yeah, it's a tiny little track there. Um, It's quite a unique racing. They're very enthusiastic in their racing. It's uh, pretty full on. There's a bit of surf there too, which probably attracted me to the place. I actually met my wife there too. Did Uh, you? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a fun place for myself and my family, but um, yeah, I did a winter's riding stint there well it must be five or six years ago now I went over there for the winter and it was um yeah it was it was very enjoyable all right you got me intrigued now how did you come to meet Trish there um, we're actually at the I'd, I'd been on a, a bit of a junket a, a jockey's challenge jockey series there I think it was in December and she'd been holidaying there and I just bumped into her at the airport I you know I saw her check in and she had a surfboard so I struck up we have, both have a passion for surfing and um I didn't know her at that stage, uh, but struck up a conversation and it sort of started from there. We didn't get together for some time after, but that's where we first met. The rest is history, as they say. Yeah. You mentioned the family. How are they going? You've got three uh, ages. Yeah, 16 Niali, uh, 13 Zara, and Luke's coming up 10. They can't be that old, Ollie. <laughs> they can't be. Yeah, they are. The school fees tell me they are, mate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, the girls are getting to that age, Um are you a protective dad? Is everything all right in that regard? Have they got boyfriends yet? Um, I'm usually the last to know. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, no, they're, they're going well. Um, they go to Wesley and uh, St Kilda Road there. They're two girls and Luke's just at local at the local Port Melbourne Primary. Um, but, um, no, they're going well and, um, you know, they like their sport. Uh, the girls do their netball and a little bit of tennis and um, Luke loves his footy and basketball. Um I had to break the news to him the other day. I'm not sure he's going to reach a great height at the basketball, but um, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I love my sport and, and love um, sharing it with him. Who's he barrack for? Um, all the kids go for the West Coast Eagles, actually. Oh, right. Yeah, I'm, so the Perth influence. Yeah, I'm an Eagles supporter and um, sort of, uh, I, I didn't um, brainwash them or anything, but they chose to follow uh, the team I followed and we, we go to the, a lot of games and, and enjoy it. Did you get to the grand final a couple of years ago? Yeah, I did. I went to the Collingwood one. We won. It was mm. fantastic. Brilliant game, wasn't it? Oh. Just one of those moments. You've been a part of great moments in sporting theatre. That last minute there, Dom Sheets kick, it'll live forever, even for Collingwood supporters. <laughs> we'll have nightmares about it, but it was just brilliant theatre. Oh, even the chain events to get to that goal, yeah. everything just went perfect. And uh, you know, it was it was exciting. I mean, I'm glad they got the last two goals of that first quarter just to hang in there, and then they slowly just pegged their way back all the way through. But it was uh, it was edge of your seat the whole game. Given the fact that you love your footy, obviously most of your job has been throughout the years on Saturdays. Do you get to go to the footy much? Do you get to go to other sporting events that you might like to see? Yeah, I, I have gone to a lot of sporting events over the years. Um, 
and uh, I do enjoy them. Uh, footy, I probably go to a handful of games a year, uh, mostly West Coast Eagles games, but I'm happy, happy to go to other games as well. Um, you know, I've been lucky enough to go to a Wimbledon final. I was riding in the UK um, that year and uh, got to know Pat Rafter, you know, in a few years leading up to that. And um, I, was, I thought, I've, I've got to go to Wimbledon while I was here. So I went to a quarter final and uh, I, I yelled out to him. And he, obviously, my voice is quite distinctive and he recognised my voice. And uh, he took us to the change rooms and we caught up. And, um, and he, I think, I, we, I got tickets again to the quote of the quarterfinal and watched him beat Agassi and he said, oh, you've got to come out for dinner. So he went out for dinner at his place that night and um, then the semifinal, um, he won that as well and he said, you've got to come to dinner as well to that. Mm. And then he went to the final and managed to get tickets to the final as well and against Sampras and uh, yeah, it was a huge experience, fantastic. I always think it's interesting when two great sports people get together and quite often one is in awe of the other one. Um, you'd look at Rafter and say, this guy is an icon in tennis, but he's doing exactly the same to you in your chosen sport. We just became good mates. We met at a golf day one day and we both had a passion for golfing and we enjoyed that. And, um, uh, we, yeah, we just hit it off really well. And, um, you know, I was riding in Hong Kong at different times. He'd come play the Hong Kong Open, we'd catch up there. Um, and, um, obviously, you know, when he played in Australia, I got to watch him here a little bit as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's good to, if you know someone and, you know, you have a passion for, for, for sport, I play a little bit of tennis. I'm not, not, I'm pretty average at it, but, um, enjoy it. Um, but it's good to see someone, you know, follow and, and see them do so well. Your sports are vastly different. It goes without saying the two sports that you, um, excel in, but when you meet top sports people from another sport, can you draw on some of their experiences and benefit from how they handle certain situations? Um, in some, some aspects you can, um, you know, I I mean, not, not off the top of my head, but you know, it's probably dealing with, um, pressure moments at different times. And, um, and I suppose getting yourself in a winning position often enough and dealing with the pressure that comes with that. And that can, uh, that can hold you in good stead every time you go to that place. Um, so, you know, that's from my, personally, from my experience, not, you know, not, comparing it to other sports, but, um, you know, the more times you put yourself in a, in a winning position or a high pressure pit position, the more, the more prepared you are for it and, uh, better to cope with. And, you know, experiences you might experience in that situation that, you know, what can come, uh, whether that's emotions or what can actually happen in front of you, uh, in a race or in a, you know, in a sporting field that you're, you're more prepared for it and more f- and feel more comfortable in those moments. What about if you're having a $20 bet or a $50 bet on the golf course or something <laughs> like that? Does it help you in those moments? Because I've seen you on the golf course hitting that fade and uh, uh, you hit it all right. Yeah, pretty steady. I like my golf. Um, it's, a, it's a bit of a release for me, you know, when I'm not riding and, you know, you can have a, a small wager on, on golf as well and mm-hmm. a bit of banter amongst your friends. I'm not a big punter on the golf course, but uh, I do enjoy getting out there and having a hit. Who's the biggest bandit when it comes to golf among the jockeys' ranks? Because there's been a few over the years. Mm, a lot of people might say me. I don't know. But probably. <laughs> well, who's the second biggest then? Um, Matty Gatt is, a, is a, probably the best golfer. He, he got to a scratch handicap. He doesn't ride anymore, but he's a good friend and um, he, he enjoys his golf. Um, but there's, there's a number of jockeys. Jamie Mott hits a good ball. Um, Stephen Arnold as well, and and Mark De Montford, who's you know obviously retired, not right anymore, but he was he was a very good golfer as well. You talked about the surfing. How often do you get to do that? Probably not often enough, I would think. No, not with the kids now. It gets a bit harder, and and even the racing schedule gets quite busy. But um, 
always try and find a little bit of time to get one. It just, you know, once again, refreshes you and just gets you away from the horses a little bit. Um, so I'd say maybe once or twice a month these days, but you know, it depends when I've, you know, only having sort of one or two days off a week. Um, if the surf on those days and and if I can get away to get one, um, or it's on the golf course, one of those. In general terms, racing is a 365-day-a-year business now. I'm old enough to remember the days where it was Saturday racing and then you'd have a main provincial meeting on a Wednesday or occasionally you might have a, a city meeting. But it is – it's full on now. It's just – it never stops. Yeah, it's very demanding. I mean, not so much that it's – it's every it's been every day for quite a while now, but it's now it's every day and night. Yeah. Um, so with that come the demands of um, – your balance with your lifestyle and your, your time. And, and there's a lot of still early mornings as well. So it's coming super demanding and, and you just have to be a bit more aware that you're not burning the candle at both ends and exhausting yourself if you're, you know, doing mornings, day and riding at night. So, um, and not only just doing it, it's just um, messing with your body clock and that as well. And I've, as I've got older, I've uh, realised that your sleep is important for your recovery and that as well. So you've got to find that balance. And, you know, I'm probably racing three to four days a week, but there might be one or two nights in that as well over the summer period. So you've just got to balance, um, keep the balance right that keeps your the people that you're riding for, the trainers and owners, um, happy, but it also keeps your consistency and, and um, balance in your life off the track as well. How much work do you ride? these days? Probably not as much as when I was younger, but I have Tuesdays usually a really busy morning. I'm generally at Caulfield and I could ride between sort of eight and 15 horses that morning. Um, and then Fridays are usually jump outs for me at, at Flemington. So they're my two key mornings. A lot of people listening, Ollie, would say, well, why are you doing that? I mean, you, you're at the peak of your profession. You've been there for a long time. Why is it that you keep on riding work? Because they do have track riders. Yeah, you still have to do that part of it and one's to build the relationships with the, the trainers and also with the horses so you've got a bit of an understanding and a feeling for them and that's the way you earn your rides as well um, you know if you're riding track work there for the trainers they're going to put you on in races as well so you just got to find that balance and you know and be loyal to the people that support you and if you go and do that then they're going to give you rides as well. Does it help you to get to know the idiosyncrasies and the little quirks of horses rather than when you get on the back for the first time and you're on a race day? Yeah, it does, definitely. And, uh, you know, there's, there's still a lot of horses I'll ride on the race day for the first time, but if, it certainly helps if you've been on their back before in training or races as well. The racing game's had a pretty rough trot um, at various times, and a lot of it has been self-inflicted. People look from the outside and they say, the game's corrupt. How do you counter that? How do you... Because... We know it from the inside. You know it a hell of a lot better than me. What would you say to those people who say, oh, there are terrible things going on in racing and people don't care about the animals? Yeah, no, I, I do disagree with that. I mean, I think if you go to any element of, you know, business or sport or or whatever it is, um, there's a small element um, that's, you know, might, might not be doing the right thing. But I, I can wholeheartedly say that um, the, the vast majority of racing people uh, love their horses. They're in it because they love their horses. They love the work they do. And, um, you know, integrity is, is paramount in racing. They've got integrity there. The stewards, I think, are probably, um, you know, you know, world's best practice as far as making sure everyone is doing the right thing. And if they're, if they're not, well, then they'll eventually, they'll eventually catch up with them. So, um, you know, I feel, I feel pretty confident that, um, you know, racing is – is, is very well run and, um, 
and as clean as it could possibly be. And when you're around a racing stable a lot of the time, you see that those animals get treated better than some humans. They are looked after and pampered like you would not believe. And I think that that's something that people outside who haven't experienced that don't really understand. Yeah, you're right. They are. They're very well looked after. I mean, they, they need to be. They can't feed and water themselves. So they have to be there, someone for do that, to do that for them. But I mean, there's always room for improvement. And, you know, as you saw, racing took a little bit of a hiding this spring carnival. So, and, you know, the welfare has got to be taken, you know, the steps in place to make sure that they are well taken care of after racing. And, you know, they have to keep, um, they have to keep really on top of that practice going forward because um, I think people are becoming more and more uh, distance from um, livestock and thoroughbreds and racing, if you like. Um, I think back in, you know, back when I started, I think everyone in the 80s, everyone had a little connection to horses or to animals in some way, but probably not so much now these days. But racing is a really big part of the fabric of our nation. And I think it is important that we um, do keep on top of it and, uh, and, and and the welfare of the horses is taken care of after they finish racing. You've always been one who had the great ability to bring out the best in horses. They often say that's through hands. Have you got any little tricks? Are you a singer to the horses? Because a lot of jockeys have sung over the years. Are you a, a talker? Or what do you do when you're aboard a horse? Yeah, I always talk to the horse. Um, you know, I've I've always grown up around animals since I was a young kid. So, and you know, I've ridden horse horses since you know probably the age of six or seven. So, you know, I've got a lot of hours on the clock. You might say with animals and horses. So, I think they can feel your um, what's the word your your body language or how you're feeling when you're on them. So, I think if you if you project a calm influence, a calm voice, and you're not um, tense or uptight. All, the, all your body language comes through the reins or through your body into the horse. So that can really be a big part of how, how the horse feels as well. It doesn't always work, but um, I think if you project a um, calming influence over them, that can really help them to get the best out of them as well. And vice versa, when you have to get um, uh, a little bit aggressive on them as well to get the best out of them. And I'm, as soon as I get on a horse, I'll, I'll have a – or even when I'm coming up to a horse, I'll have a look at its whole demeanour and, and how it looks and – you know, you can look in their eyes, you can look at their ears and, and, and just their whole body language as to how they're feeling as well. And, you know, when I'm on a horse, I'm constantly watching their ears or feeling and, and looking for every little bit of movement that might come from them. Um, so that can be uh, the best way, I feel, to, to feel the, the body language of the horse as well. Have you ever had one, Ollie, coming close to talking back to you? <laughs> what's, what's the closest to talking back to you. What's the horse with the most personality that you've ever ridden? Um, well, there's been some good and bad ones. Um, mm. I'm not sure if I could name one off the top of my head, but it's probably more the – there's certain horses you just really click with when you get on them and, um, you know, they just – and they become easy to ride. I mean, it's probably the equivalent of riding a um, – or driving a, a really nice car that's smooth to drive and, you know, and and some cars I think you – you click better with than others as well um, than a, rather rather than uh, driving a whole he- old heap of junk, you know. Um, but there's certain horses you just really click with that um, you do feel at one with, and you can get the best out of them. And and you know, there's no better feeling when you do get that, and especially when they're they're fast ones as well. And is that always the star horses, or are there some pretty ordinary horses that you've ridden on multiple occasions that you feel really comfortable every time you put your leg over them? Yeah, look, there's there's some really kind and gentle horses out there that aren't blessed with a lot of ability. Um, 
and mine and vice versa. There's um, some really terrible horses out there that do have a lot of ability, and then you've got to try and find get the best out of them as well. Um, but when you get that perfect blend of a horse with good ability and and a good temperament, um, yeah, that, that's when it that's that's the perfect that's the zen then. We'll talk about some of those headline act horses when we come back on the other side of the break. It's great to have Damien Oliver with us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives and we'll be back with the champion jockey with more on the other side of the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Great to have you with us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives. We're celebrating the life of Damien Oliver, the champion jockey. Just a lazy 10 Scobie Breezleys, is it, Dame? I think so, yeah. yeah. That must be a great thrill that you recognise with a medal that is named after one of the legends of the sport in Australia. It is, and uh, to do it... To win the first one and, and, and be able to still be able to win them, you know, later in my career is something I'm really proud of, having longevity and being able to stay at the top for a long period of time. Um, and, of course, Scobie is a legend and a trailblazer in racing. He, you know, he rode so successfully overseas and um, he was a wonderful jockey and a wonderful guy too. I got to know him in his later years and, uh, yeah, I'm really proud of that. Yeah, it was great to be a part of it. I hosted a few of the, the early awards when you were winning, uh, but to have Scobie there, it just made the night so much more special. It did, yeah. He was a gentleman and, uh, you know, he's, um, you know, as I said, he's a trailblazer for, for jockeys. All right, let's turn the clock all the way back. You spoke about the early days and your early life with horses. What are your earliest memories? Oh, I was throwing on some ponies when I was probably five or six. And then I think I started riding track work when I was maybe six or seven over in WA. Wasn't in too much control back then, but it was pretty young age to be riding thoroughbreds, I think. And uh, not say that I did it full on from that age, but, you know, I was always around, growing up around horses and, you know, I had a love for other sports and footy and surfing and cricket and all BMX, those sort of things. Uh, yeah, horses were always there in the background and always um, myself and my brothers had some ponies and we'd, we'd race those a little bit as kids as well. You were made aware at a very early age that racing was dangerous because of tragedy that happened early in your life with your dad. What are your memories of that time? Uh, I have no memories of my father. He passed away when I was three years old in a racing accident. So yeah, I didn't really have any memories of my, my father. What were you told about him? What did what did your mum tell you about your dad? From what I'm led to believe, he was um, a likable sort of guy. He actually didn't want to continue riding for for that much longer. He um, he bought a farm about two or three hours from Perth, and uh, he was going to go farming because my mother was from a wheat and sheep background, um, from from a farming background, and uh, I think he liked that a little bit more. So never went down that path. The fact that he was killed did it ever cross your mind that this is a sport that potentially is just too dangerous, not worth losing your life about, or was it always something that you were able to just put aside? Probably if it had happened later, you know, when I was probably had a, more memories of my father, it, it may have, but not when I, when I didn't really know him at three years of age, no. Mm. What was your first winner? Mr. Gudbod, Bunbury, about, probably about 1988, I think. Do you remember the race? Yeah, vividly, yeah. Tell us about it. Uh, it was about 70 to 1. My brother didn't want to ride it. He got me the ride from a trainer, Bruce Kay, that he used to ride a lot for. And um, he was well-bred, I think, uh, but uh, wasn't much good. was back midfield on the fence and got a good run through and managed to win. What was that feeling like, the first time that you found the winning post first? Can you remember, you remember the race? Can you remember the feeling that was going through you? 
I think so. I'm sure it was pretty exciting. Um, even back then, it seemed to sort of, you know, they travel pretty fast, 60 or 70 kilometres in a race, but it seemed to happen in slow motion to me for some reason. I don't know why. But, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was, I'm sure it was pretty exciting. So that was 88, and you obviously made a big impression early on because it wasn't that long uh, before you were over here. And I think you rode in the 89 Melbourne Cup. That was your first Melbourne Cup, was that right? Yes. How did that finish? No, not too good, that one. Um, picked up a ride on a mare called Salas Opera. Um, no one else wanted to ride. I think it had about 48 and a half kilos, so I managed to pick up the ride. And I can remember um, <clears throat> uh, about the 1,000-metre mark, I was, I was going all right. I was about 250 to 1, I think, the price of the horse was. It was a real outsider. But um, had all the good chances around me, superimposed, terrific, phantom the Phantom, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Next thing, Rich, Richard Jolly fell off in front of me on a horse called Salas Opera, and um, I'd almost got around him, and he was just hanging off the side of the horse, and uh, he lost grip, and my horse went over the top of him and tripped my horse over, and I went down as well. So there you are. You're riding in your first Melbourne Cup. Great achievement for any jockey, any young jockey from the other side of the country, and you're sitting on your backside over near Chiquita Lodge. <laughs> What was that feeling like? I asked you about the feeling of your first winner, but what was your first thought when you're sitting there thinking, oh, there goes the rest of the Melbourne Cup field? Yeah, I was pretty flat, um, and um, I was an apprentice to the Friedman brothers at the time, and uh, I said to the ambulance driver, I said, who won it? And they said, oh, terrific. I said, oh, yeah, right, you know, and yeah. then um, su- Superimposed had run second, and I thought I was concussed. <laughs> but uh, it was a great result for them, but not so good for me. I, I remember uh, boarding with Lee at the time, and uh, you know they were pretty excited that night, and I was um, I was pretty down the dumps. <laughs> How big an influence was Lee on your formative years when you came across the country? Yeah, they were all pretty uh, quite a big influence out of me. They were they were very competitive people, and uh, they expected high standards, and they they put a lot of pressure on you to perform. And uh, yeah, they they had a good quite an influence on me early in my career. How did you get on with Anthony? Because he's a different character, isn't he? Yeah, no, I got on all right with Anthony. He's commonly known as Grumpy, but yeah. you know um, you know where you stand with him. And, um, yeah, he, he's, um, you know, he, he he's good. He's a good horseman. And, uh, you know, I got, on, I got on pretty good with Anthony. And, of course, Richard was always destined to be in front of the television cameras, the lights and the glare and uh, the makeup and all that sort of thing because it just suits him down to a T. Yes, Richard, he loves the sound of his own voice. And, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, he's... he's Forged quite the media career. Yeah. Your first big winner over this side of the country, what was it and did you believe at that stage, when you get your first winner under your belt, that you belong in this caper? It was actually um, Stephen King and myself uh, got asked to go and ride in Sydney um, one spring. I think it might have been that spring. I'm not sure it was that spring or the year after. The Sydney jockeys had gone on strike and they flew Stephen and I up to uh, ride there and we rode half the card, I think, we rode five winners anyway, I'm not sure which was which, and uh, I won on a horse called Groucho in the Warwick Stakes. Mm. That was my first memory of a big race, and then I'm not sure if it was the same spring or the one after, I, I got the ride on a horse called Submariner for Bart Cummings, who I'd you know, ridden a few winners for over the winter, and it had 49 kilos or something in a, um, in a Rupert Clark Stakes, and uh, I rode it in that, and it drew barrier one and managed to get the money. It was, uh, it was uh, Pretty good riding your first group one winner for Bart Cummings. And it was around about that time that Scalach was around, the old grey flash. What a great horse. And you had a wonderful partnership with him. Yeah, I did. Uh, it was a few good horses there, him, Mannerism. You know, Scalacci, he was um, he was that dream horse that you loved. You wish every jockey could have one stage in their career. And um, 
he was so powerful and strong, you just have to hang on to him and uh, he was an extraordinary horse. And there was just something about him too, his appearance, you know, the ghostly grey and, and yeah. the punters and people who went to the races just flocked to him. They just loved him. Yeah, he was a winner. He was a big, strong and kind of laconic type of yeah. horse until he got onto the track and then he was he really switched on. He was a big, strong, powerful horse and uh, he had great acceleration and he was just a dream to, dream to ride. Uh, we couldn't possibly go through all of the horses that your name is associated with, but I want to take you back to a day in 1995 when your life changed forever. Let's have a listen to what happened on that day. Comes the Caulfield Cup winner, Doremus. Nothing like a Dane on the inside, and then Storm from Bullwinkle and Quick Ransom, and then Boart. They're at the 300 now. Doremus swept to the lead. The three-year-old, nothing like a Dane, coming at him. They're clear of Coachwood, and then came Quick Ransom. It's Doremus in front inside the 200-metre mark, led by a length to nothing like a Dane, giving everything. Then Quick Ransom, Coachwood, and Vintage Crop. But it's all Doremus at the 100. Raced away, three lengths to nothing like a Dane, and then came Vintage Crop. But Doremus takes the double. Doremus, three and a half. Nothing like a Dane run second. Vintage Cropper's third. Quick Ransom four. The big baldy face and the long flowing locks of one D. Oliver that day. Was it a dream come true when you saluted the judge that day? Yeah, I think it was. Um, I'd ran second in the Melbourne Cup the year before in Paris Lane. So uh, uh, to come so close and then, you know, to win it the following year was was a dream. You know, he'd won the Caulfield Cup and... uh, we actually thought he was a better chance in the Melbourne Cup. Um, so the Caulfield Cup was a bit of a bonus, but it came up wet in that Melbourne Cup. And we weren't sure how he liked the wet track. As it turned out, he loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, he was he was a great horse. And uh, he, he ran in four Melbourne Cups and narrowly beaten in another one, which I didn't ride him in to might and power. But, um, yeah, he was a wonderful horse. Yeah, the famous salute from Hawley when they went past the post. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. been beaten by a pimple that day. Uh, did your life change? the day that you won the Melbourne Cup? Well, it certainly does. It's, you know, it's the race that stops a nation. It's called that for a reason. And, um, I mean, you can win every other major race on the calendar, but when you win that one, you're automatically recognisable to, you know, p- people that maybe don't follow racing all the time. So, and it opens a lot of opportunities for you, whether it be domestically or internationally. I got to go and ride in Hong Kong after that. And, um, you know, it certainly, certainly, certainly helps your career. My memory of that week is that it exemplified the ups and downs of racing because here you are on the Tuesday, you're the Melbourne Cup winning jockey. What happened two days later? Yeah, my first ride Oaks Day took one step out of the barriers and drove me into the ground and broke my collarbone. Was that a horse called Chiricahua? It was, yeah. Good good memory there, Pete. <laughs> yeah. And um, I saw you later that day. Jenny Chapman and I were doing the Melbourne Cup for Channel 10 and you were in a house, I think it was up on Fisher Parade or not far from the race course. And we thought, poor Damien, he's going to be in so much pain. But you were actually quite happy when we saw you. <laughs> I might have been a bit medicated by then. I think you I? might have been, <laughs> just a little bit, yeah. Uh, but doesn't it illustrate the ups and downs of racing? Oh, it does. I mean, you can you can be flying one day and, and, and going really badly the next and vice versa. You know, you can turn around so quickly. Um, and, you know, that's, uh, that's the great unknown of, of horse racing. Melbourne Cups are obviously one of the things that you're known for, and we'll touch on that famous Melbourne Cup of 2002, but you've, you've won everything in racing. What are the other moments apart from the Cup that stand out for you? Um, oh, that's a good point. Um, geez, off the top of my head, obviously the major races like the Caulfield Cups and the, the Cox Plates as well, it was a, 
It was a huge thrill winning the Cox Plate first on Dane Ripper, but then Northley, a West Australian mm. horse as well. So, um, you know, obviously having that uh, association uh, and coming from WA, it was was really proud to to win on a you know great West Australian horse in in the Cox Plate as well, and and having some international success on horses like Falvalon in uh, Hong Kong, um, uh, State Taja won a Hong Kong Cup on as well. So yeah, um, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of different things I'm proud of, and and also obviously having you know success interstate as well. Going back to Northerly, he wouldn't have won a beauty contest. No, he was the most ungainly champion horse you'd probably see. Uh, most of the champion horses, you know, they look good, they're strong and imposing. He was lean and lanky, and you know, he was always the first horse under pressure, but he was always the last horse standing. Mm. He um, he was incredibly tough and. Um, you know, if if you got into a war, he was the one you wanted to be on. Was he awkward to ride, Ollie? Because he got his head up a bit, didn't he? Yeah, he did, and he could hang in a little bit as well. Yeah. So yeah, he wasn't the easiest horse to ride, but um, he's a horse that you uh, you you might have felt beaten on him, but you always felt that he was going to uh, respond for you anyway. Yeah. Was it that Cox Plate um, that you rode him in, where they all came together, or was that another yes, one? Yes, that's the one. Yeah, that was. I was standing on the Stewards Tower that day. That was so close to disaster with what happened in the last 50 metres or so. Were you aware of all that crowding going on? Yeah, I was. Um, it's always hard to tell who's doing the most shifting, but I knew Northerly had a habit of hanging in, but Sunline had also shifted in out from the inside as well. And I knew that Viscount had got some um, some tightening in between us, but I felt that uh, we were holding them on the line and felt quietly confident that we would keep the race, but you never know when, you know, when there's always someone judging on it or as an opinion on it, you never quite know what, um, what opinion they're going to take. Flemington's special because the cup's there and it's one of the iconic race courses of the world, but Mooney Valley, that atmosphere, it's hard to match anywhere, isn't it? Yeah, it's very unique. It's, um, it's quite the amphitheatre, um, small track, small straight uh, and the crowd sits right over on top of it so um, and for one of our greatest races to be run on it it's um, it's it's a little bit odd but it, it has a uncanny um, ability to to get the best horse to win it and provide some fantastic moments as well and you experienced those at Mooney Valley and there was another one at Flemington that we'll talk about on the other side of the rake one of the most celebrated days in Australian sporting history that's all when we come back on the other side of the break with Damien Oliver plenty more still to come on this is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals visit tobinbrothers.com.au Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives you're listening to this is your sporting life with Peter Donigan for Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives and they share the lead around the home turn ahead of Hatherana who's gone. The keeper runs on. So does Pentastic and distinctly secret. Passing the 350 metre mark. Damien Oliver sends Media Puzzle to the lead ahead of Vinnie Rowe who can't find. And back behind them is Beekeeper. Distinctly secret. Pentastic. But Damien Oliver riding with the spirit of Jason. Out by three on Media Puzzle. I think he's got the cup run. Beekeeper Mr. Prudner running on from Vinnie Rowe but it's Media Puzzle clear. And Media Puzzle. Damien and Dermot have done it. Media puzzle beats Mr. Prudent beekeeper, Vinnie Rowe The Melbourne Cup has had some emotional days in its long and proud history, but probably none more so than that. Damien Oliver is my guest. Tough day. It was such a tough day, but it was an uplifting day in lots of ways. You felt, I'm sure, the support of the nation behind you. Uh, yeah, I did. Um, it was a lot of pressure, though, I must must admit, when I look back on it now. Um, but I was, I was so glad I was able to pull it off. <sighs> 
I didn't know if I should do it or would do it, uh, be able to ride and let alone win the Melbourne Cup because the lead up to it didn't go so well. Uh, I had about eight rides on Derby Day, a lot of favourites and hardly rode a place and mm. sort of was questioning whether I'd made the right call. Cup Day, once again, first four rides before it hadn't gone so well, um, but I had to keep re- reassuring myself that I had made the right call and, you know, I've got, I have to say, riding in that Melbourne Cup, I've never had one go so smoothly for me. Um, you know, it was like uh, it's like he was riding with us. Mm. Um, and, you know, that horse just felt like he was going to win so far from home um, that, uh, you know, I was, I was glad I was going to be able to do it and, and pull it off because it, it was a wonderful tribute to him because he was um, a big part of the reason I went into racing. You know, we were, we were great mates but very competitive and uh, he was um, – he was a six successful jockey before me, an apprentice, and uh, and that's probably what really sparked my interest to go down that path into it. So I was really proud that I was able to win that race and, you know, provide a great legacy and memory for him. How close were you to pulling the pin when Jason died? Um, I just have to take a moment. Take your time, mate. Um, from riding in that cup or altogether? Both. Um. Well, probably not from riding altogether, but um, from riding in that cup, I just, I felt I could do it, but I just, um, I didn't know. Take your time. Um, yeah, I just didn't know what other people would think. So yeah, I was sort of uh, glad I was able to do it. Yeah. A lot of people um, marvelled at your strength of character and clearly we can see all these years, 18 years later, pretty close to it down the track, how emotional it is. In that last... 300 metres. What were your thoughts? What were you thinking about your brother? Um, it was just uh, all the probably childhood memories that we had together. Yeah, that was probably what I was thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. The Melbourne Cup's seen a lot of emotion. I've never seen anything like it the day. When you came back to scale, you must have been aware of it, but I've never seen so many people at a race course in tears. It was just, it was an incredible moment. It was so powerful. Yeah, it was it was a bit of a blur for me. Um, I had to try and keep myself in a bit of a bubble to stay focused and be able to do what I was doing without getting caught up in the emotion of it all. So it was difficult from that perspective, but I actually felt most comfortable when I got on the horse and away from people. It was like I had the fence or a barrier between me and the rest that was going on. So And you were lucky because it was, as Greg Miles said in his great call, it was Damien and Dermot. Dermot Well, just a legend of this caper. Yeah, wonderful trainer. Um, he's obviously first international to win the cup with Vintage Crop. Um, but, um, you know, he had a, an art form of travelling horses, not only to Australia, but to, to the US and or out throughout Europe. So um, he's a qualified vet and I think he just has a great understanding of his horses as well. And your third cup victory. We talked about Northerly not winning a beauty contest. The horse that you won the Melbourne Cup on for Gay Waterhouse, he was a supermodel. He was a male supermodel, Fiorenti. He was a good-looking boy and he could run a bit too. Yeah, he was a terrific horse, outstanding horse. He ran second in it the year before I won on him and Gay did a wonderful job in setting him for that Melbourne Cup and being able to win it. I'd actually not ridden him in a race before that Melbourne Cup. I was meant to ride him in the Cox Plate but got suspended and missed the ride. But I'd done a lot of track work on him and I think that was part of the reason I was able to get the ride with Gay being based in Sydney. I felt she wanted some a jockey that could, you know, help in riding the track work with him down here. So I felt a big part of the team and 
Gage just trained that horse beautifully and riding him in track work gave you a lot of confidence you're on the right horse to win the Melbourne Cup. Every Melbourne Cup's historic because of the nature of the race, but for Gay to do it with the relationship from TJ and all those years ago, you know, we talk a lot about Michelle's win and rightly so, but that was an historic day in Melbourne Cup history as well. You must have been very pleased to be part of that because she's an icon. Yeah, she, it, it was. I mean, she's... She's a breath of fresh air in racing in, yeah. in a male-dominated sport, and she's knocked down so many barriers before, you know, a lot of females were accepted into racing, and she's done such a wonderful job and, you know, so much success as well. So it was, it was great to see her win a Melbourne Cup and to be part of it. You know, I feel pretty fortunate as well. This is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals back with Damien to wrap it up on the other side of the book. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Great to have you with us for a very special edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. We're celebrating the racing life of the champion, Damien Oliver. Ollie, what are the ones that I don't have in this list of all of these great horses? Is there one victory, perhaps, that might not have attracted the headlines that you got a whole lot of satisfaction out of in your career? Oh, geez, Pete, you have a question without notice. I mean, there's so many. I mean, if I say one, I'm sure I'm probably going to leave it out. There was a horse in Sydney. I won the derby on a horse called Don Eduardo, really high, mm. high-priced uh, yearling, and um, we were able to get the best out of him and, and win the AJC derby. So that was quite rewarding for Eduardo Cuenco, who was um, a really successful Filipino businessman who had San Miguel, and he was a major sponsor of the races in Sydney at that time. That was a fantastic win to be a part of. You've had your share of falls over the years. How easy is it to bounce back after a serious fall? Does the fear factor ever come into it? it that's a part of it, but it's the physical scars and, and I suppose the the mental scars of whether you have the ability to be able to do what you could do physically, but then and then having the mental strength to, to deal with the situations that may arise in a race as well. So there's a lot of parts to it. And then it's probably getting the people's confidence put in you as well, that you still have the ability to be able to do it as well. So there's there's many different factors to it, but... You know, jockeys are pretty strong characters and, um, you know, they, they are tested a lot during their career and in, different, in different ways. So if you can withstand all those challenges, you know, they're, they're pretty strong characters and be able to come back from a lot of things. There's so many highlights in your career and you said about being tested in lots of ways. What did you learn about yourself when you spent those eight months on the sidelines for doing the wrong thing, for having a bet? I learned a lot, actually. I probably learned a lot why it happened and, and then I had a lot of time to think about it. After it happened, um, you know, I'd, I'd lost, lost my brother in 2002. Um, I had a really serious spinal injury uh, in a fall where I thought I could be paralysed um, the year later after that. I broke a T3 and 4 in my spine and had six vertebrae fused, so I was out of the saddle for 15 months with that. And then when I came back, I lost my position as a stable rider with Lee Friedman. So, you know, all those things sort of built up and I probably just didn't cope or deal with it as well as I thought I had or should. So yeah, that all led to making a bad mistake and, and you know, betting on a horse that I shouldn't have bet on. It made me realise that, you know, I was always quite introverted and I'd keep a lot of things in. I didn't really seek a lot of help or, or ask for help or release that pressure in a lot of ways. And I think um, that made me realise that you can't just deal with it all yourself. You, it's, you know, you've got to have a good support group or, or ask for help if you are struggling to cope with things at times. And when you do something like that, you've got to earn people's trust back again. But such was your standing in the racing industry that people said, 
he's done the wrong thing. But I think most people said, okay, well, he's done his time now. We'll give him a second chance. And I think that speaks volumes about the way you were regarded in the industry. Obviously, that was the wrong thing to do and and I did the wrong thing, but I'd built up uh, a lot of trust in people before that and I'd done a lot of good things as well, but I still had to come back and prove and, and regain the trust of a lot of people and people that know me well and know that I'm a really determined person and um, I felt that, you know, I'd obviously had a few obstacles through my career that, you know, I'd been able to overcome them. I was really determined to, to come back and earn people's trust back and, and finish my career on a good note. On to our last couple of points. We mentioned the jockey's room. You sitting in that little corner there at Flemington, you've always had your corner. Has is, is that always been your spot? Yeah, pretty much so, I think. Yeah, it was probably the only spot available when I first come along the, in, <laughs> in, at the young age, but I've, it's a spot I've kept, yeah. Yeah, you walk past Dwayne Dunn, who's just inside the door there. I'm so privileged to have been the tallest person in the jockey's room for <laughs> a long time and bossy. Who was the biggest pest in the jockey's room? Now, I've got a vote uh, from what I saw. Chris Simons, I reckon, would be pretty hard to beat. Yeah, Noel Callow's always entertaining yes. up there too, and um, Mark Zara's um, always pretty fun too. But just watching the byplay and the interaction that a, a lot of them have, Ben Mellum's a uh, bit entertaining as well. So there's plenty plenty going on. There's, there's a lot of characters in there, and it's, it's always a lot of fun. And the one thing that I was privileged to see, and, and the cameras have been allowed in, I always said it was the second last bastion of sport. The cameras didn't go into the Australian cricket team's dressing room, and they didn't go into the jockey's room at Flemington, but we got to see behind that. But the one thing that struck me when I first went in there is how compacted the space is. There's not a lot of room for you guys in there, and you're out there doing battle against each other. Yeah, they've been promising to do it up for us for a long time, <laughs> um, but they haven't delivered yet, so um, hopefully it'll happen one day. At least it would stop people uh, tripping over all the cables for the cameras, which always used to be fun when I was in there. It was um, a bit tight at times, wasn't it? <laughs> now you know it's like out on the track. Though. Yes. I do. Well, no, I don't. Um, <laughs> and I don't think too many people do. And that brings me to my final question. How long do you keep doing this? I'm just going to keep doing it year by year. I sort of haven't set a, an end date for myself. Um, still enjoying it, still doing well, um, still getting good opportunities. So those are the things that are, you know, keeping me going. As long as I am, I'll, I'll con- continue to do it. It's been a brilliant ride, if you'll pardon the expression. Uh, that fresh face kid that I first met when you came over from Perth all those years ago, you've given us some magnificent moments. You've spoken so beautifully about your brother, some indelible moments in Australian racing history. You're a champion, and it's been a pleasure to sit down and have a chat to you. Thanks, Pete. Damien Oliver joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. I hope you can join us at the same time next week when we do it all again. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.